Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. And on today's Bosscast, I'm joined by Sir Tim Smith, KB, the legendary founder of the Eden Project. Now, Sir Tim is a former archaeologist and musician, and his dream for the Eden Project began back in 1987 when he first moved to Cornwall. Now, the world-class architectural destination opened its doors in 2000, and since then, it's been visited by over 19 million people, contributing around £1.9 billion to the Cornish economy. Tim is also Executive Chairman of Eden Project International, the development arm of Eden, which is aiming to have a project on every continent by 2025. He's also the keynote speaker at this year's UK ULI conference, which takes place on the afternoon of 10th of June. Now, luckily, it's a virtual conference, so you're still able to get some tickets. And if you head to uk.uli.org, the website, you'll be able to pick some up. Now, I caught up with Sir Tim earlier on, and we had to break our no Zoom rule for this episode because because he was about four kilometres underground drilling for thermal energy. But it's a fantastic conversation. He's a great guy. Uh, and I started by asking Sir Tim how he thinks the corporate world is dealing with some of today's challenges and what he thinks we've learned over the last year. Well, if I start in reverse, what we've learned over the last year is that human arrogance that imagines that nations make any difference to us being connected um, that's been shot below the waterline as we realise that all our uh, all our natural spaces are interconnected. That's done about 50 years worth of education in eight months because without anybody in the whole world doesn't think we're now interconnected, which is marvellous. Number two, most chief executives I know at big companies have been influenced well, well beyond their, their expectations uh, in terms of the, the need for their company uh, or companies to go not only greener, but to actually work within a system uh, that is uh, a natural-based system rather than a linear algorithmic-based system. Reason why? Nothing to do with all the big-shot environmentalists. It's all to do with their children and grandchildren beating them over the head for eight months about, actually, what are you doing to save the planet? And it really matters. And actually, an awful lot of, especially middle-aged men, need to be told that it's serious, as opposed to serious that you drink over a glass of wine and talk about it. No, no, this is existential. And I think a lot of people have been very, very slow in picking up on the fact that we've got some very real problems. Regardless of whether we talk about doom and gloom, which I don't believe we should, there is something fundamentally wrong at the heart of uh, commercial life where we actually believe that the laws of nature are trumped by the laws of the market. And I think what uh, you're seeing in an awful lot of commercial people, this is really interesting, is the understanding that we've actually been infected with a collective madness, which has enabled us to say that there are some elements of things called natural capital that we ought to be taking account of. For example, there ought to be uh, the accounting of externalities. When in fact, the truth is we've gone mad. What on earth made us as human beings think that it was acceptable for anybody to be polluting the water which belongs not only to us, but to future generations? What made us think that about air? What made us think that about fertile soil? That is nothing to do with capitalism. It is to do with a poor moral compass. And I think what we're going to see is a very radical shift in business all over the world as we realize that we've got to work with the weft of nature and not against it. And I think that we are coming at it at a point which is not past the point of no return, but I think it's going to affect the way we live and the cities we design and the villages and homes we live in um, 
radically. Do you think we have an adequate policy framework in place to support this change that you're talking about? I love the idea that we question whether we've got a policy framework for something that's existential. Um, nature doesn't really care about human beings having adequate policy framework. I, I don't know if you know that, but actually it's going to be really important that those who see themselves as leaders actually learn to grow up. Most of the middle-aged men I know who are members of the establishment couldn't lead a drink in a brewery. They think leadership is about uh, effectively like conducting a strange orchestra, playing the music they want to play. Leadership isn't that. Leadership is about being able to make the hard decisions that are necessary for future generations to feel that we've done the right thing. Luckily, we've had a plague and that plague has visited upon us a process of thinking in which I think many people realize that actually fearing being disliked is a terrible weakness you must make really proper decisions for the future and that if we're bearing in mind the conference that we're talking about it is here that the biggest revolutions are going to take place in terms of us examining how people not only live today but how they're going to want to live i think you'll see uh but with the gutting of high streets, for example, initially you're going to get all sorts of lazy, oh, we're going to have to just have retail, oh, retail's going to turn into housing, whatever. No, we will have housing in the middle of cities, and that's a good thing. But we're also going to suddenly have the space in the middle of cities to reimagine what education might look like. What are schools going to be like? How are we going to do health and well-being? This is very exciting. It's really exciting. Um, and I don't think we should be scared of it. I, th I think the future, the future of education is probably the single most important thing there is on the grounds that if you've got a good education, you'll have a good health. Um, and if you have a good health, a lot of the costs of society are managed in a different way and people are able to be happier. I hate to sound like a stuck record on this because I, I actually think we're facing a period more exciting than since humans came down from the trees onto the savannas. I, I really do. The other thing that you're going to find in, in, in uh, local development is suddenly, what are we doing, you know, in terms of the trees we're planting, the shrubs we're planting? What are we doing tarmacking over soil? What are we doing actually to allow the soil porosity to increase the chemical fabric of the soils to be better? Get rid of pesticides. This is not going to sound like hippie stuff anymore. That's the really exciting thing, is that this is going to become a new normal, a new moral compass about design and livability. And just thinking um, you know, to your point on town centres, we had a meeting this morning with the Contemporary Arts Society and we were talking about some of their work, bringing artists together with different places and getting there early in the development cycles to, to engage different points of view. What is What should that look like? How should we be repurposing urban centres to reflect culture, reflect art and support it more, more coherently and, and make it a much more cohesive part of society rather than just a sticking plaster? Well, first of all, I'd make a map around Britain of all the villages and towns and cities and ask how many spaces there are where people naturally feel encouraged to walk romantically hand in hand and feel like making love. That'd be rule number one. Rule number two would be this is a classic British sentence you've uttered. How are we going to get artists to interface more accurately? That's not art. That's not art. That is an intervention of people who are trained to be artists in public spaces. This has got to be seen as the livability factor. So, for example, most architects are 
are prone to great laziness when it comes to urban design. And where the artist can be really effective is like Eden. Our best building at Eden started from the proposition of the art we wanted. Now build, a sh now build something over it, please. Yeah? I mean, great art induces a feeling of either awe in some way, humour in another way, or it creates a sense of place, which... If you like, and if you like, enables our own memories to then accrete to that, and then create a sense of meaning and belonging to that place. All of these are rightful, rightful roles, but there needs to be a distinction between art, artifice, and artifact. I mean, all those those, those three elements are things that we take account of at, at Eden a lot. And I think the future of cities is is very very interesting. I mean, we're working in China, where we know there is a huge uh, pressure in order to think of cities now as villages, which are all accreted together. Because of course, one of the benefits of the electric motor car is going to be that it won't need to be driven by humans, which is a, hum a huge relief to hedgehogs, uh, but also their fellow citizens, um, uh, because it means that you'll only need probably one lane uh, or, or in either direction for an electric motor car, which suddenly means that the place to buy Let's go down to Hangar Lane. We can dig up all of that tarmac and suddenly all of those houses where you were choking to death, we can now have front gardens and vegetables and children can play and dogs can run. It's going to be bliss. Our cities are going to be marvellous. And in China, we're starting to look at that. And in, 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 in Britain, we'll start to look at that. But the British are kind of a bit anal about all of this. They think that, you know, professions should stay separate to actual life. And I think that the architect... Uh, the architects and landscape architects and engineers uh, need to get together because in my experience, the engineers are usually overrated. Uh, the landscape architects are generally ignored. They are invited to come in later at some kind of go plant us some plants, won't you? And then the architects do all their testosterone laden showy offy stuff and tell us how brave it is and how wonderful it is. And then no one wants to live there except to throw themselves off and commit suicide. I think we ought to actually, uh, we ought to be, be, be creating challenges for people to create great livability. And before we give a commission to an architect, we ought to go and see where they live. I always think this is amazing when you have planning authority and you have the planning committee that makes a decision. I think every member of the planning committee, we should all have a picture of their house. Have they got taste? Have they got a sense of place? Um, now, I'm being a bit extreme. It's just that I think for architecture and engineering, uh, I think it's almost the death throes of those industries. Because I think what we're going to do is we're going to go back to um, the days of my heroes which are all the king's horses and all the king's men who are now going to put Humpty Day other, uh, uh, together again, which means that we're going to be looking at space making as a whole rather than just allowing architects to have a little bit of a rant and a bit of a tweet and uh, off you go. By the way, I ought to say that many of my best friends are architects and they, uh, I say this advisedly knowing that my Christmas card list is probably going to be a lot less. No, I think that's fine, Tim. I mean, there'll be, there'll be lots of lots of interesting views, I'm sure, in, in response to this. I mean, one one final question then, which plays to to, to some a point you just made. When we're thinking about natural capital and, and biodiversity, particularly, which is obviously something we're now you know, we're now being asked to measure things like biodiversity, net gain, and and and, and things like that, that that never previously were part of the conversation. What, what fundamentally needs to change? If we're going to really start putting all of these more important things first, what, what fundamentally is going to have to shift in order to make that happen? Because we're still relatively, you know, relatively speaking, at, at, at a bit of an impasse when it comes to, 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 to much progress happening. Everything's about... Um, stopping development in most places and 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 the development 
that does come through often, uh, you know, it results in, in massive compromises for all sorts of reasons. So how, how do we get around those problems? I'm not sure there's an answer about how you get around the problems, but one of the things that happens in the planning cycle is that uh, owing to the way we view democracy and the way that people make their views known, there is very little leadership in it. It it is actually quite a peripatetic uh, gambling activity, whether you get planning consent or don't get planning consent. And then you wed that with a, a construction industry that is by and large pretty much like mammoths. Um, they the one of the reasons why you very rarely start to specify materials that haven't often been used is because they often haven't been used and that represents a risk and that actually may, means there's problems with building regulations and blah 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 you can write the script yourself we're talking about a very primitive social structure that we have which is unfit for the modern age which is moving at the speed of knots we ought to be building incredibly lightweight buildings that can be taken down that can be repurposed um when people talk about the circular economy, it makes me absolutely laugh. People talk about end of use. Um, the, 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 they mistake the fact that proper a proper circular uh, uh, economy deals with change uh, uh, end of use in terms of the start of next use as opposed to just end of life. Um, there are so many aspects to construction and the creation of the artifacts and things that go in the utilities that go into the way we live where they are just fundamentally unsustainable. I mean, if you're going to build yourself white goods without them being capable of being recycled completely, why don't we just stop that or put a huge carbon tax? I think one of the things that's a shame for a lot of people is carbon taxation is going to come in. It's going to suddenly be seen as as being the thing. And all the people who've been trying to sell you carbon offsetting by planting trees or doing some other little piece of crummy work uh, are going to be shown to be people who don't know what they're talking about. And we're going to be needing to look at our cities in terms of them also being part of the green infrastructure. Our roofs, our walls, our balconies, our public space need to not be a concrete jungle. They need to be something very, very different. Um, I'm sorry I'm ranting about this, but but I, I actually think that very often the questions are wrongly asked. It's a bit like, gosh, how, what are we going to do with this thing that it's been, you know, the mass misery caused by the developments that we currently do all over the world. What are we going to do to to change all that? Well, you asked me what my biggest insight was from doing the Eden Project. It is that, that um, everything starts from the individual and the emotional intelligence of an individual and the way they feel about where they are. Because if you make something terrific for one person, it'll be terrific for 10, 100, 1,000, a million. Because if you are not a freak, and most people coming will not be a freak, if you feel something is marvellous, the only difference is marketing. Let people know about how wonderful it is. Just imagine that you wanted to go to the middle of your town or city. I don't know where you are at the moment. Where are you? Uh, we're in London, uh, in Bloomsbury, next to Bloomsbury Square. So, so you've, got a, you've got a square there where if you've got a key, you, know, you can get into Bloomsbury Square, can't you? You can walk around and you can have municipal plantings, which actually look like a graveyard uh, because there's no money left really for doing public gardens and parks. Um, and you've got a huge amount of space for cars to go around roads and a huge amount of pavement. Um, that's not intelligent, is it? But because it's got the word Bloomsbury and there are some famous people who are part of the Bloomsbury group associated with it and it's got limestone, we just overrate how good it is and how beautiful it is. So do, do you think then... I mean, coming back to to your your point on building sustainably, 
do we need a wholesale revision about the sorts of materials that, that are allowed and that are specified? Because this country has got a massive aversion to timber. And obviously, post-Grenpa, everyone's very obsessed by fire safety. And that's being now used as, as one of the sticks, if you excuse the pun, to beat uh, the potential use of timber in construction with. So are you suggesting that we need to have a, a far more revolutionary approach to the sorts of materials that we prescribe? Um, yes. It's absolutely preposterous not to build in timber when most of the world will build in timber on the grounds of fire risk. Why does it need to be a fire risk? And since when did we not put in fire alarms that worked? I mean, there's a kind of really weird minute. Uh, 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 what, what is that thing? Recid recidivism, I think is the word, where you go backwards. We won't do that because of the risk of X. I mean, the fact that someone allowed some lagging to go 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 uh, uh, over a whole range of apartment blocks, which is um, uh, not fire retardant, um, should not that that information should actually be it was criminal to sell that stuff it was completely negligent uh for the powers that be not to police that stuff to test that stuff um and to actually think that value engineering means you do something cheap but with a lower performance um that's another a building canard building business canard i think it's preposterous completely preposterous and I suppose looking forward then, what are the sorts of projects that you're involved with at the minute? What, what, what's keeping you busy, Tim? And, and, and what's the, what, what is the lasting legacy that, that you'd like to have on, on different places? Well, I don't know about lasting legacies, isn't it? You know, Ozymandias, fantastic. You know, no, no, no one cares about Ramses the second. And yet he built some pretty cool pyramids and stuff, but no, the, the 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 thing is cultural. Eden Eden is trying to create a cyclical um, uh, system of operations for its sewage, for its water, with our energy, with our solar. We're building a, a deep geothermal plant, which started drilling last week, down to four point seven kilometers, um, and we want to demonstrate that humans can live really, really well without having to use more than the, 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 more than actually the planet can sustain i also think that, that that you know eventually we're going to wake up and realize that if we want to live on a great planet we've got to become more equitable regardless of the fact that i'm i'm commercially minded or you might call me a capitalist it is preposterous that the wealth gaps between the poorest in our society and the wealthiest in our society are greater than they were in the victorian era that doesn't make me feel very excited about being part of the human race or being part of britain does it you I mean, it is quite scandalous. And how is that going to change, though? How that's going to change is, well, it needs an act of will. I was once asked, I, I, I was a Remainer, and, and I got very angry with this journalist who came to see me three years afterwards, just on the brink of us leaving Europe. Uh, and I said, you know what? What depresses me more than anything is the mediocrity of your questioning. The really only interesting question to ask someone who's a Remainer is this. What would it have taken to make you a Brexiteer? That is a really interesting question. And since you're now asking it, because I put it in your mouth, the answer is that if you realise that with the history of being on an island, it would be really good if we became energy independent based on renewables. 
it'd be terrific if we were food independent based on understanding our farming systems and nurturing our wild spaces. And lastly, we will spend 40% of our gross domestic product on education because there is no evidence anywhere in the world that goes for better development than through paying for education. The health outcomes, the democratic outcomes are beyond, um, are beyond doubt. Some fantastic points there from Tim, and I'm sure whatever your views on Brexit, you'll agree that it's pretty hard to argue with putting education at the heart of progress and societal change. Now, please remember to head online to uk.uli.org to grab some tickets for the ULI UK conference on the 10th of June. You can hear Tim speak alongside uh, a number of other key figures. And coming up on our Bosscast series, we're going to have some big names like Argent and Granger. And it'd be fantastic to hear from anyone with an idea or a theme they think we should be discussing on Propcast, so please do uh, get in touch. Please subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, and, and stay tuned, obviously, to propertyweek.com for upcoming news. Thanks very much for listening. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting, and we'll see you again soon.